following program is intended for mature audiences. Welcome to Rudy's Revelation. It's Sunday, April 25th, 2021. This week I'll be talking about blame and actually who's responsible politically and for what. We're talking about the term ipso facto. Also be talking back to the Sunday Talking Heads on CBS Face the Nation, where Ohio Governor Mike DeWine talks about policing in the fatal shooting of the knife-wielding 16-year-old Micaiah Bryan. Also be checking out Sunday Morning Propaganda at our favorite feel-good feature news program, CBS Sunday Morning. Our New York Times columnist Charles Blow compares the trial of 1955 lynching of a black teenager, Emmett Till, the 2020 case of George Floyd, who died in police custody after resisting arrest. We'll also be tearing into the Sunday New York Times, showing you how the newspaper continually mischaracterizes the facts to mislead the public. Of course, I'll be going over the weekend headlines all the next 30 minutes. But first, I'll be taking you back to school, giving you some historical context to frame this week's news narratives. of the day is ipso facto. By that very fact or act as an inevitable result. As an example of ipso facto, if we refuse to tolerate bigotry, do we become ipso facto as intolerant as those who we condemn? Ipso facto from the Free Dictionary. Is Latin, ipso facto, Latin for by the fact itself, an expression more popular with comedians imitating lawyers than with lawyers themselves. A simple example, a blind person, ipso facto, is not entitled to a driver's license. Ipso facto. How leftist critical race theory poisons our discussion of racism. This is from the Heritage Foundation in an article by Ellie Krasnay. If you disagree that the philosophical framework, then you are ipso facto against fighting racism or deny that racism even exists. And if you push back on the use of terms such as power structure and systemic dynamic, you are likewise accused. And this is in her article entitled How Leftist Critical Race Theory Poisons Our Discussion of Racism. And she uses ipso facto in the terms of by just looking at it, that you are accused of denying racism exists and you yourself are racist. And of course, we get into this because of the blame game, which is defined by Merriam-Webster as a situation in which different individuals or groups attempt to assign blame to each other for some problem or failure. How to end the blame game, this is from San Francisco Gate. It's time to talk seriously about the blame game in this article by Deepak Chopra, 
In a special to SF Gate, San Francisco Gate, it is time to talk seriously about the blame game in a divided nation. Everyone finds reason to blame, and the only choice who deserves the blame. Targets are easy to find because they are everywhere. Somebody somewhere is behaving in ways you disapprove of. When the situation is us versus them, has it ever been hard to blame them? Of course not. And that's when you get into tribalism. That's why it's divide and conquer. They put you into little groups, and then you point the finger outward. The Blame Game is a song by American hip-hop recording artist Kanye West from his fifth studio album, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. The song features recording artist John Legend and was produced by West, Justin Franks, and Mike Dean. The song features a hip-hop skit provided by comedian Chris Rock. It contains a sample of Avril 14th by Affex Twin. Lyrically, the song contains West's thoughts on past breakups and explores the themes of unrequited love, heartbreak, and spousal abuse. Well, that's kind of the pop take on the blame game. But from habits, blaming others, six reasons why people play the blame game. Blaming others for your own misfortunes, whether it's another person or an external circumstance, is an easy way to outsource unwanted responsibility. People tend to play the blame game when they can't see a better solution, their problem, or can't handle personally distressing situations. Most people who can't deal with themselves externalize. How to Stop the Blame Game, this is from Harvard Business Review from May 13th, 2010, by Nathaniel Fast. Playing the blame game never works. A deep set of research shows that people who blame others for their mistakes lose status, learn less, and perform worse relative to those who own up to their mistakes. Research also shows that the same applies for organizations, groups and organizations with rampart culture, excuse me, rampant culture, of blame have a serious disadvantage when it comes to creativity, learning, innovation, and productive risk-taking. Who does that sound like? It sounds like the Democrats, of course. And from Forbes, avoiding the blame game, in this article by Michael Sayek, take ownership, full stop. This is what I expect from my team, What I hopefully demonstrate to my employees and peers, a few years back I sent all of my managers a copy of Extreme Ownership by former Navy SEALs Jocko Wilnick and Leif Babin. The TED Talk Jocko Wilnick gave on the same topic is worth 14 minutes of your time when people take personal responsibility for what they're collectively working on and establishes trust. When people trust each other, blame is less likely to come into play. And from the psychology today, from Dr. Elliot Cohen, stop playing the blame game, how your blame claims may be impeding happiness. One of the most destructive human pastimes is playing the blame game and has been responsible for mass casualties of war, regrettable acts of road rage, and on a broad interpersonal level, social, familial, And work-related, a considerable amount of human frustration and unhappiness, the blame game consists of blaming another person for an event or state of affairs thought to be undesirable and persisting in it instead of proactively making changes 
that ameliorate the situation. The drive shaft of this game is a series of four irrational beliefs. If something has gone wrong, then someone other than myself must be identified. And blame for causing the situation. Number two, the person's malfeasance diminishes the respect he and she deserves as a person. Three, so it is permissible to treat this person in ways he or she deserves to be treated, such as ignoring, name-calling, in extreme cases, physical assault. And you see this very often in uh, what the police have to deal with. And number four, I must not accept any significant degree of responsibility for the situation in so much as to do so would be to admit that I am myself also diminished as a person and therefore deserving of the same disapprobation and negative treatment. And the blame game, as we said before, is a song by Kanye West. As a last resort and my first resort, you call me mother. And that's just a bit of it before he gets to the MFR word. And I'm going to leave you, of course. Less than 3% of you people read books in this segment with Rudy's Revelation Reading Recommendations, Policy Controversies and the Political Blame Games by Marcus Hinterleiter. We're also going to leave you with the Political Blame Game in American Democracy, Lexington Studies in Political Communication. They started it. Look at the forces that have developed over the past 50 plus years and created a dysfunctional political system in the United States. It argues that the current level of partisan polarization is actually the accumulation of a number of forces at work during the past few decades. These include perception by each party that the other is using unfair political tactics, the subsequent creation of a culture of blame with each party blaming the other for the dysfunction. A decline in political norms leading to a childlike behavior by politicians and political candidates a culture of payback in which the opposition argues their opponents are responsible for the decline. These four factors culminate in 2016 election, where they were exemplified by the campaign of Donald Trump, and they have continued to have a significant ongoing impact on the political landscape. So it's worth a read. Hardcover is $55. You can get it on Kindle for more, $76 on Kindle. Going to go into the headlines, Portland mayor urges residents to unmask rioters after weeks of violence. The mayor of Portland, Oregon, asked residents to help Friday in putting an end to the violent protests that have erupted just in recent weeks. I mean, they've been going on all year. And urged the public to stand together to take the city back. <laughs> you should have let Donald Trump send in the troops, man. From the Daily Mail, this is child abuse, not education. Parent who pulled his daughter out of 43K per year New York City school over white privilege lessons reveals letter he sent to principal.
from the New York Post inside the growing underground network of parent fighting anti-racism in New York City school. Now, this is Harvey Goldman. His nine-year-old daughter was learning about George Floyd's death at Black Lives Matter as well as her own white privilege at a $43,000 per year Herschel School in Manhattan. I mean, every, if people don't know by now, it's called indoctrination. Uh, it's a Maoist tactic. And basically what you're doing is you are training the youth to want to tear down the culture, uh, particularly the political culture and ideas of the parents. This is from AP. From the 24th, gas prices creep higher in New Jersey around nation. We don't have to go into this. It's obviously inflation, and when you stop uh, doing oil exploration uh, in this country, uh, they're going to raise gas prices on you. Again, from the New York Post, new photos show Epstein and Maxwell were VIP guests in the Clinton White House. Yep, there's the picture right there, Mac. Maxine, Ghislaine Maxwell, and Jeffrey Epstein greeted by Bill Clinton. Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein were once White House guests of former President Bill Clinton. The images were published by The Sun days after Maxwell's last court appearance on sex trafficking charges in Manhattan. Related to her alleged procurement of underage rape victims for the convicted pedophile, talking about Epstein. From Politico, reckless Russia's power is in decline, say British spy chief. MI6 chief believes Moscow's power is waning. We all know that. I mean, since the break of the Soviet Union, uh, their power has been waning. I mean, there's still a nuclear power. Reckless Russia's actions are worrisome. MI6 boss Richard Moore... Wasn't it Roger Moore? No, that was 007. Pointed to a heightened... It's so funny, all these spy people, they come up with these silly names. Pointed to heightened tension over Ukraine last week and weeks report that Russia's military intelligence agency, the GRU, blew up a Czech arms factory that causes of concern. You know, they're looking out... Most countries look out for their own interest, whether it's Russia or China or the United States. Well, the United States used to. From the Washington Post, a churning golden state on the eve of new population numbers. This is an article that basically says people people are fleeing California um, during a you know during a stream of illegal immigration and rising homelessness and crime. Go figure. CNN politics. Maxine Waters just inflamed a very volatile situation. This is from the nineteenth. This is from last week before the Chauvin verdict. Um, you know, she was out in the street, uh, you know, causing mayhem, uh, asking for mayhem, uh, right ahead of this, uh, this jury decision. It's just irresponsible. She should be, she should be kicked out after all these years. People know enough about Maxine Waters. She should be gone. The political revival of Ralph Northam how an ostracized governor became a progressive champion. This is a guy, okay, he supports uh, abortion and um, organ harvesting uh, from aborted fetuses. And it was 
found in his yearbook uh, blackface and somebody in a Klan's hood, uh, you know, under his description. And the Democrats love this guy. Of course they do. Terrence from the New York Times, really quickly. Women are battling China's angry trolls. The trolls are winning as online attacks against Chinese feminists intensify. Popular social media companies are responding by removing the women, not the abusers, from the platform. If you think you have any sort of rights in communist China, I don't know why they write this write this article. Uh, okay, they're feminists in China, right? And what happens to them? They get removed from uh, social media. Uh, they probably get rounded up by the secret police, uh, thrown in jail, and their organs harvested. But who knows? How the trial over Floyd's death flipped the script for black victims. George Floyd was presented as a full person, not just a body beneath an officer's knee. Derek Chauvin, who was convicted of his murder, remained an aloof figure. Look, the knee on the guy's neck, I'm not condoning it. I don't... Particularly, I don't like police tactics at all. Um, so I know I understand there's a lot of anger there, but as far as um, Minnesota is concerned, uh, the knee restraint is a lawful restraint. And so he was using a lawful restraint on a guy that died in police custody. He, he wasn't murdered. Uh, he died in police custody. Lots of people die in police custody. you know. And if you don't listen to the police, police do bad things to you. I don't think they should, but this wasn't murder. Eight minutes, nine minutes, there's no, in the law for knee restraint, there is, there's no law limiting how long you've got to apply it for. Decades after police bombing, Philadelphians sickened by handling of victims' bones. The disclosure that anthropologists at two Ivy League universities had kept bones from a victim of the 1985 move bombing infuriated its members as well as city leaders. In 1985, the police flew a helicopter over a crowded West Philadelphia neighborhood and dropped a bomb on the row house where the members of the communal anti-government group MOVE lived. Now, nobody knows about this. This is 85. You know, I was a teenager then. The bomb started a fire, and the police ordered firefighters to let it burn. Eleven people, including five children, were killed. This is why you can't like police tactics. This is It's the same thing with the Branch Davidian thing. It's the same heavy-headed ta- tactics and disregard for life that makes me not like police. It's just, you know, that's just the way it is. Um, they're anti-government group. I mean, if they were uh, doing terrorism, they should have been uh, arrested. You don't drop bombs on American citizens, regardless of <laughs> what crimes they may or may not be committing. So we're going to leave you in uh, the Sunday Review. And we're going to leave you with an op-ed piece, uh, What Nomad Land Exposes About Fear in America. People who live in homes on wheels should not have to be in constant fear of the knock. 
And uh, the reason I get into this article is because there's a big push for van life and trying to get people into smaller living. Uh, I'm a minimalist, so I can appreciate it, but I don't think culture should be saying, hey, you know, live poor. Because basically living in a camper is living poor. You're basically homeless when you're living in a camper. Um, but basically this are what this article gets into, and this is what the movie Nomadland does, is it uh, romanticizes, you know, living poor. And I don't think you should do I have no problems with people living rich or even opulent, opulently. I wouldn't. I don't. I try to live minimally. Uh, and, and I could get the allure of living in a, in a van, doing van life or whatever. Um, so basically what this opinion piece is, is that people shouldn't worry, have to worry about the authorities coming and, and knocking on, the, uh, on your van or wherever it is you're living on the street if you're homeless. Um, and this is about the, this is done by the author of the book Nomadland. And basically it says, um, you know, people shouldn't have to worry about getting roused by police if you're living in your car or a camper or something. And I happen to agree with that. But the reason I got into this too is that, um, it's again, it's a cultural, it's like the tiny house thing. It's a cultural effort to romanticize minimalism because then when you're forced to uh, um, guaranteed basic income and uh, cough an apartment, you'll be like, oh, isn't this swell? And that's what they're going to try to sell you. So, so we're going to leave you with um, Governor Mar uh, Mike DeWine of Ohio who talks about policing um, in the wake of this uh, killing of a 16-year-old who is uh, wielding a knife. I mean, this happens all the time. People wielding knives always get shot. So you shouldn't wield a knife out in public. And my whole point about this, this killing was if she stayed on her property, if she stayed like eight inches in or a couple feet in on her lawn, she, it, the law looks at it completely different. So <clears throat> if you say somebody is, you know, threatening you on your lawn and you come out with a knife, uh, it's the law is different. There. As soon as you come on the sidewalk, public property, and try to stab someone, cops going to shoot you. What is there for us to learn? Body cameras, um, you know, the tragedy of the 16-year-old child who was killed in Columbus. Uh, Mayor Ginther made the absolute correct decision. Within six hours, they had that out to the news media. Um, uh, clearly, it is there, and that is to treat police as professionals. It's not that the local prosecutor can't do it or the local police can't investigate themselves, but particularly with the police investigating themselves, you know, there is the appearance, there's always the appearance that, you know, that was not a fair investigation. So I think getting rid of that feeling, getting rid of that appearance, making sure it's an outside agency that is doing the investigation. BCI in Ohio does a great, great job. They're the ones that are involved. It's a state agency. They're the ones that uh, the mayor has asked to come in and do the investigation in Columbus. You've talked about training, and I want to talk about the Micaiah Bryant case. There's been a lot of people looking at because the video is out there, a lot of people making judgments. What a lot of people in the black community see 
is they see a situation in which white assailants, young white men who sometimes have just come from committing mayhem, are taken into custody. But when it's a young black man or woman, uh, they are, there's a shooting, there's a, a use of force. And they see a wide disparity there in terms of the discretion used by officers. Do you understand that feeling? I also understand the feeling of the police officer. Uh, I've not been a police officer, but I was a county prosecuting attorney. Look, they've got a tough job. Um, you know, they have to make split-second decisions. And in this particular case, for example, you know, you're watching the same thing I'm watching. You know the same thing I'm, I'm seeing. But that's what the police officer saw. So that's why one reason, frankly, to have the video cameras uh, and get that out to the public so that everybody can you know, can take a look at that. But, but yes, I understand how they feel. It's one of the reasons why, you know, uh, teaching them implicit bias. Um, There's nothing to do with implicit police bias. training, how you diffuse a situation, uh, how you deal with someone, you for example, who has a mental health problem, never how you deal with someone who is autistic. All of these things, you know, we know how to do now. It's just so, getting that training out to every police, every police officer uh, in the country. Likely, if you're black, to get uh, shot in one of these instances. And then also in Columbus, there was a study that showed even though black residents are 28% of the city, they're involved in half of the use of force cases. So it's not just a feeling, let's back it up. And I'm wondering if you could be very specific in this training about basically the implicit views of race that get embedded one way or another into police that cause these kinds of outcomes. Sure, th this, this is state-of-the-art training today, John. This is what professionals want. And that's just the thing, is how do you get people to comply? I don't think police officers should do it violently. I think there should be stages that every police officer will follow, right? You talk to somebody, but an instance of a knife-wielding person, they got to get shot right away. There's no, you don't try to talk people down that are charging around with a knife. You don't say, hey, calm down. You know, he did. He, he asked the woman to get down on the ground, and she didn't. She went for the other girl, you know, on a public sidewalk. Uh, so the guy shot her. But how do you get people to comply? And if there's a perception of white people not getting treated violently, in all these case, cases, uh, the victim or the perpetrator, the suspect, refuse to comply with police. And that's when bad things happen. If white people are more often to comply with police, then they probably don't meet as much violence. I don't know. When people don't comply with police, police get really edgy. Just the way it is. In my encounters with police, keep your hands on the wheel, speak quietly, do exactly as they say, nothing will happen. If you try to run away or reach really quickly into your pocket or whatever, because um, they're just defending themselves, and they're very suspicious people <laughs> by their nature of their profession. So we're going to leave you with uh, New York Times columnist Charles Blow Hard, who actually compares the trials of a 1955 lynching where the perpetrators got off, uh, like an all-white jury or whatever. And this was in 1955. And they compare it with the 2020 case of George Floyd, who died in police custody after resisting arrest. It's, it's not even the same. It's not, one is a completely racist, systemically racist uh, cover-up uh, of a heinous, heinous murder. Heinous murder. Heinous, the worst kind. You put, you know, your murder victim up for display. Awful. You can't complain. <laughs>
you can't compare that with a guy that was in police custody and died in police custody. I mean, people say he was murdered, but like I said before, that was a legal restraint. So it's not... <sighs> Charles Blowhard. We caution his commentary includes graphic images. Till was a 14-year-old Chicago boy who in the summer of 1955 was kidnapped from his great-uncle's house in Money, Mississippi in the middle of the night. He was brutally beaten, forced to strip naked, shot through the face, and then tied with barbed wire to the fan of a cotton gin and thrown into the Tallahatchie River. I couldn't help but think of Till's trial while watching the murder trial of Derek Chauvin in the killing of George Floyd. You could reasonably argue that Floyd was lynched by Chauvin. But the trials were completely different. Chauvin was found guilty on all counts and led out of court in handcuffs. It had been 65 years since a white man had been convicted of killing a black one in the state. Over 65 years later, in Minnesota, Chauvin became the first white officer in the history of that state to be convicted of killing a black person. This time, in this moment, if only for this moment, history would not be repeated. Justice would not be mocked. They're gonna put y'all back in chains. If you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, and you ain't black. I'm telling you, man, comparing those two, one is you are, <laughs> you're equating a racist killing with something that didn't have anything to do with race. You're, people say it does, but there's no proof that Officer Chauvin was motivated by race, and they're not saying it was a hate crime. He was convicted of murder because maybe some callousness, obviously. But that has nothing to do with race. So you're equating one extremely racist, systemically racist event that happened over 50 years ago to something that that it was really an accident, but... The guy died in police custody, which happens all the time to people. That's why you don't want to get arrested, for starters. All right, that's it for us. News Revelation. Check us out on Twitter and Facebook. See you next week.